Welcome to the History Trust Summer Podcast Series. This podcast is based on the original recording from our Talking History program. You can read more about the podcast, its content and speaker in the show notes via your preferred podcast platform. Talking History was created on Ghana land, and the History Trust acknowledges the First Nations peoples of South Australia, whose connection to country and living cultures began in time immemorial and continues to the present. There was the usual scramble and the general family gathering around a Saturday morning cup of tea to hear all the news from Nora, all her doings, and no one is ever disappointed, for your letters are so full of enthusiasm and they're so well expressed that they're a pleasure and a joy to all of us. They've become a weekly institution. I don't know what we do without them. I thought it might be interesting to take you into the background behind my working on a book of letters between Hans and Nora Heisen, who are Australia's most well-known artistic father-daughter duo. Now, Nora Heisen died in 2003, and she decided late in life that her letters should be lodged with the National Library. Her father's papers had been placed there after he died in 1968. Hans Heisen corresponded with many key art world figures of the day, and from the cedars, he kept his finger on the pulse. He'd often write a draft of a letter before the final version was sent off. When Nora was a young art student in London, her father frequently reminded her how much the family valued letters, writing to her on the 9th of January, 1935. It's a treat to have your letters, to look forward to them each week. You don't know what joy they bring us. Nora, in turn, from London, valued what she called home news. In May 1935, she commented, mail days are the bright spot of the week. And then she bemoaned those days when the mail failed to turn up or was late in arriving. Sally, Sally Hyson, would sometimes pop a gum leaf or a perfumed flower in a letter, as she did for one of the London letters. Nora writing, In Mother's was a pale blue pansy and a poppy petal. It gave me a quick thrill of pleasure to find them there, and the lovely soft colours looked charming on the blue-grey paper. In posting a letter overseas, Hans, Nora and Sally knew the news would be six weeks in reaching its destination, since letters went via surface mail. If the news was urgent, an airmail letter was sent. Nora initially attended the Central School of Arts and Crafts in London, but not long after commencing there, she was told her drawing style was out of date, and she wrote home on the 12th of November, 1934. I got a criticism of my drawing from Bernard Meninsky. He was scathing, writes Nora. He gave me the worst, the most damning criticism I've ever had. In fact, he had not one good word to say. My drawing was lifeless. It was dull. It was formless. It was superficial. He said the technique was like sandpaper. He couldn't have said anything more disheartening. And my conceit went a mighty crash. I don't know how far he's right, but it appears he doesn't see my point of view at all and looks at the figure in a totally different way. He draws with a heavy line and square modelling, handling the pencil like a pen, whereas I draw with a single line 
and just use shading to emphasise certain forms. It's very difficult to know how far to trust one's own judgement and how much to follow the masters. It isn't much good going to a school unless I'm ready to knuckle down and learn from them. But on the other hand, I don't want to give up my point of view for his. He draws very well and I admire the solidity and the movement he gets. I don't want to draw like him. To which Hans Heysen's Nora's first teacher and doubtless teacher of that drawing style replied from Ambleside on the 26th of December 1934. My dear Nora, don't get too disheartened with Meninsky's criticism of your drawing. I think his main object is to insist on the pupil searching for movement and life. And to her credit, Nora did take the criticism on board and she produced what I think is one of her most interesting self-portraits ever. In another letter, Nora reported home on the cold winter in London, to which Hans Heysen replied on the 5th of March, 1935, the family excitement was very real over your last letter. We all enjoyed it thoroughly. The news of the first snow certainly did awaken the imagination and memories of my first snow, seeing it falling softly towards evening from the sixth story window overlooking Boulevard Montparnasse. Now the letters provided a space for each to talk about their work. Hans, for his part, had a commission in 1936 from the Adelaide Steamship Company to paint a picture for one of their vessels, the TSMV Menunda. This was one of their largest passenger ships, taking passengers and cargo between Fremantle, Melbourne, Sydney and Cairns. He wrote about progress on that painting on the 5th of June, 1936. He wrote, I feel much happier now that the picture for the Menunda is complete. The last touch went on a few days ago. The picture now awaits the approval of the Adelaide Steamship Directors, who are still quite in the dark as to the subject, so perhaps, it being only gum trees, they mightn't think it sufficiently exciting. But it looks sunny and bright in the studio with a somewhat exaggerated blue in the sky. This, he says, I did intentionally, as blue so quickly loses its brilliance when taken away from the direct sunlight, and the painting is set at the far end of a long saloon in the ship. London was pivotal for Nora in terms of being exposed to all art styles. She took full advantage of the art on show at the National Gallery, and there's lots about that in the letters, including the all-important Chinese exhibition at Burlington Gallery. And about that exhibition in particular, she wrote, I feel stupefied with so much beauty. And she met Oravida Pizarro. Now, Hans Heysen had actually engineered that meeting. He wrote to Oravida Pizarro to inquire about purchasing her painting, Mother and Son, and that purchase duly transpired. And Nora wrote home, I've now received this picture. It hangs on my wall and it looks absolutely lovely. Miss Pizarro, as Nora called her, delivered the painting to Nora, whereupon Nora asked the more senior artist to look at her work. And Oravida then offered a stinging criticism. So here was criticism number two. And it was conveyed home in a letter. She came in like a bomb dropped out of the blue. She slattered me right and left. She said my paintings were muddy and 50 years behind time. 
She advised me to change my palette. She admitted I could draw and I had talent. That's all she allowed me. She thinks I use too much brown and black and yellow ochre and I keep my colour too low in tone. I, who pride myself on fresh, bright, clean colour. She hates yellow ochre and I love it. And I use it in almost everything. This is where we disagreed. She gave me a list of colours, an entirely new palette, mostly of cadmiums, excluding ochre, black and brown. And so we come to Hans Heysen's reply. He said, very diplomatically, Miss Pizarro comes from a long line of artists, so I was particularly anxious for you to meet her, as I felt only good could come of it. Her palette sounds well worth experimenting with. In fact, it's always wise from time to time to make a change. Not that you definitely need to discard your black or your brown. These have their proper place. But Nora took on Oravida's advice and went out and purchased the new colour range. She reported home, I'm painting my self-portrait in a higher key using no black or brown in my palette and only a very little ochre. I'm doing myself in a blue smock against the wall and part of my pink roses. The colour scheme is beautiful and I hope to make something good out of it. Nora returned to Australia in late 1937. She'd become confident and sure of herself while away and wanted to stay in London, as you can well imagine, and only returned because she ran out of money. Her painting style had changed too and moved from being the more formal one she adopted pre-London, where she said her biggest influences were her father and Vermeer, to a looser post-impressionist style. She moved to Sydney in mid-1938 and established a practice as a portrait painter. But there the artists she mixed with regularly were drawn very much from the Society of Artists group with whom she and her father both exhibited. Her father's influential friends rapidly became her friends too. So you can see that she's already facing a dilemma. She moved to Sydney to establish herself in her own identity, but in fact moves into her father's circle. But through the Society of Artists, she met a host of artists more her own age, including Adrian Faint and John Brackenrigg, and then artists she knew from her London days, William Dobell, Eric Wilson, Arthur Murch and Jack Carrington. She wrote home on the 5th of September, 1938. On Sunday, McGregor invited me to lunch. Sydney Ewer Smith and Hera and Mrs Nesbitt were there. And McGregor was a liberal host. He offered me a large room to do portraits in and the loan of any of his vases. They were for props in the portraits. He's very kind, she says. Tomorrow, Madame Sherman is coming to sit for me. So I'm busy stretching down a big canvas in readiness. That sitting led to the painting of Madame Alink Sherman that won the Archibald Prize in 1939. The trustees of the Art Gallery of New South Wales, though, had to defend their selection of Nora Hyson as the winner of that year's Archibald Prize against the misogynist complaints of fellow competitors, especially the disgruntled Max Meldrum, but also against insidious, nasty hints of Hans Hyson's influence. The trustees, to their credit, cited Nora Hyson's use of colour, as they should, on its winning quality. By the early 1940s, and with Australia at war, and two of the Heysen brothers in the AIF, Nora decided to put her skills to use. She let it be known through influential family friends 
that she'd be interested in working as a war artist. Louis McCubbin, director of the Art Gallery of South Australia, just happened to be a member of the Australian War Artists Appointments Committee. He put her name forward, along with that of Stella Bowen, another South Australian artist, and both were announced at the same time as official war artists in February 1943. Nora Hyson's first task was to paint the portraits of the heads of the women's services. But then when it came to painting matron Annie Sage, head of the Australian Army Nursing Service, she was on a winning streak. She said she really enjoyed working on that portrait, writing home in 1943. She has a fine head and the whole thing is like a Flemish old master. Van Eyck would have loved her. Annie Sage was taken too by Nora Hyson and rapidly arranged for her to go to New Guinea to portray the nurses there. By April 1944, she was on her way to New Guinea and wrote home to her parents on the 8th of April from Port Moresby. A word before I take off for Finchhafen. Strangely enough, after dreading going up, I enjoyed the trip here. It was exhilarating and beautiful, taking off into the early dawn at Brisbane. I was the only woman and the only Australian in an American Lockheed, an honour, I'm told. Flying these days seems as casual as catching a taxi. It amazed me, taking off with so little fuss on such a long trip. Passengers and luggage were piled in haphazardly with rubber tyres and jeeps and soldiers, all on top of each other. A young fellow with rolled up shirt sleeves took his place at the engine and off we went with a cheery call to hang on. And as everything tipped down to the tail end, I did hang on. I'm living with the sisters and I've been allotted a tent by myself. One sleeps on a straw mattress and under a net and everything creeps and crawls and smells of mildew. In one letter she said, this last week it's rained or rather it's poured continuously everywhere, mud ankle deep. I spent the days painting in my little tent, my feet on a box to keep them dry, my canvas perched on a chair and my bunk a litter of paints and paper. My paintings mildew overnight. They'll be old masters before I get back. Nora found a way around painting in the heat of the tropics by working in the operating theatre, which was cooler. And she wrote at one stage, to paint again in a studio will be heavenly. Here, I usually prop my doings up on a chair, balanced on blocks and set on a petrol drum in the blazing heat and glare. But the operating theatre provided some relief with its stone floor and whitewashed walls. I was frowned upon by the surgeon until I made a drawing of the theatre sister for him and now he's cooperative and we take the use of the theatre, turn and turn about. There I work in the sterile atmosphere of ether and whiteness. She had to wear a mask and gown working in the operating theatre to which she wrote home, it's quite fantastic to find myself in this atmosphere. The war does strange and unpredictable things to us. At one stage, during this New Guinea sojourn, Hans Heysen commented in one letter, My dear Nora, it's been a boon right along to have your letters. Mother and I have enjoyed every one of them with their pen pictures of every scenery and personal happenings. What an experience. Sometimes I wish I could be with you to explore the new fields, but I draw the line at the conditions you have to work under. Now the tropics ended up not agreeing with Nora Heysen's skin she developed a bad case of dermatitis. It was so bad she was sent home to recover. Her next postings included 
the uh, blood bank in Sydney, and then she was in North Queensland, where she completed some stunning portraits. Interestingly, the surviving letters make no mention of meeting and falling in love with the already married Dr. Robert Black in Finchhafen. It could be those letters were removed, or it could be she saved up that news for a trip home. Post-war, Nora was back in Sydney. In 1948, she was on her way to Liverpool to join Robert Black, who was completing further studies into tropical medicine. The Liverpool and London letters speak of post-war rations, difficulties in obtaining art supplies, her securing commissions for paintings, and meeting up with expatriate artists. Now, Liverpool was especially badly bombed during the war, and on the 9th of May, 1948, she wrote home. Since I wrote, I've received Daddy's letter, a very happy occasion, and deeply appreciated, even to the fine quality rice paper on which it was written. How one has come to really value the things of quality left to us. I'm constantly reminded here that things are not what they used to be. And it's sad to see and feel the damage. Trying to buy artist materials, I came away dumbfounded and empty-handed. No brushes, no turps, no paper, no canvas, no stretcher, a few restricted colours in stupidly small tubes. Evidently, paint is considered a luxury item, not to be encouraged or indulged in in any circumstances. I regret not bringing more canvas and paints, and I'm busy trying to procure odd bits of canvas. But then again, one is curtailed, as linen is couponed, and the ingredients for priming are nearly unprocurable. There were acute food shortages in Britain too, and Sally would send Nora food parcels, to which Nora replied, I'm enjoying the contents of the latest food parcel. The eggs are excellent for salads and for currying, and the bacon is a wonderful acquisition. The rations here don't improve. There's been another cut in butter, which leaves two ounces a week, and meat is almost negligible. Nora ended up in London while waiting for a boat back to Australia, and there she met up with Ursula and Bill Haywood of Carrick Hill. While in London, I stayed with the Haywoods, and I had a very gay and entertaining time with them. Never a dull moment. People all the time, plays, concerts, nightclubs, parties, and a delightful boat trip up the Richmond River. Nights were turned into day, and no one went to bed before four or five in the morning. The hospitality of these people knows no limits. All Australians in England congregate there to eat and drink and be merry. A great number of people are going to find life very flat now that they've gone. Nora returned to Sydney in 1949. Housing was in short supply after the war, and she and Robert lived together in Elaine Haxton, she's a fellow artist, in Elaine Haxton's vacant flat. And then by 1953, Nora wrote home how in mid-January, she and Robert Black finally married. His divorce papers had at long last come through. Hans Heysen's reply of a few days later reveals the family's relief that this unorthodox arrangement was at last resolved. And he wrote, My dear Nora, at last your letter has brought the long-awaited good news. Hearty congratulations. Yet it seems strange to congratulate you now when in your own conscience you'd found your life's mate some years ago. And congratulations can only come on the legal binding. So I'm glad this has been accomplished to everyone's satisfaction.
Nora entered numerous painting prizes during these years, including the Australian Woman's Weekly Portrait Prize. Can you believe it was judged by men? She also entered the Melrose Prize and the Archibald Prize with her painting of Robert Black, and she entered the Portia Geach Prize. Now, that was a recent prize. Nora had a feisty nature, and it comes out in one of the letters after attending the opening of the second Portia Geach Memorial Prize in July 1966. I didn't know this prize was to be a yearly event until I received an invitation to the opening. I felt sour about this, as I would have liked to have had an entry. So I went along to drink the cocktails and to complain, both of which I did to the utmost of my capacity. But I don't think my complaints were really necessary because it was all too obvious. I was one of many who hadn't heard the competition was going to be held. There was no portrait worthy of the $1,000 prize, poor show, all round. One cannot help but feel that because this is a prize exclusively for women, it was not given importance. With a few whiskies under my belt, I let them have it. I'm not an aggressive feminist, but I can be roused. Meanwhile, in the 1950s, Hans Heysen's work was still in demand with a sell-out exhibition in Sydney in 1952. However, Nora Heysen's parents, Hans and Sally Heysen, have periods of ill health, especially Sally, and there are numerous letters of inquiry about their well-being. Hans Heysen continues to be busy producing art, and inquiries come constantly to Nora in Sydney from various Sydney galleries wanting her father's work for upcoming exhibitions. And then in 1959, Hans Heysen is knighted and his portrait is painted by Ivor Heal and presented to the Art Gallery of South Australia. And he recounts those sittings and the letters. Increasingly, the letters of the mid-1950s and the 60s touch on balancing a professional career with the demands of a married life, such as entertaining Robert's colleagues. And on the 3rd of September, 1962, she writes home testily, we entertained a beautiful Indian woman doctor the other night. I'd rather have been painting her in her glorious rose silk sari than preparing a meal for her. By the mid-1960s, Hans Heysen is elderly, 87 years of age. And on the 20th of December, 1964, writes, your father is growing old. There's no doubt about it. It's becoming more and more difficult and an effort to reach the studio without a stick. The picture market has never been as good as it is at the present. Unfortunately, I cannot keep pace as I do not go out sketching and I have to rely on completing older work. I just got a letter from Ballarat asking for a typical Heysen oil for the new gallery at Shepparton. 500 pounds by February. Can I do it? I doubt it. Sally died in 1962, Hans Heysen in 1968. And there the letters close. Once the marriage failed in 1962, and the stresses around that in the 1960s are certainly there, a new energy entered into her painting in two magisterial portraits her larger-than-life rendition of author and poet Merv Lilly, and then her lively portrayal of the poet Dorothy Hewitt, showing a woman whose wild and uncontrollable hair signals her free spirit. 
Nora had entered a new chapter in her life. We hope you enjoyed this episode. This is just one of the many stories of South Australia's history from the past, unfolding today and now preserved for the future. To read the show notes about this podcast, or to access the original recording, search Talking History in your favourite podcast platform, and don't forget to subscribe to hear the latest episodes. You can also visit history.sa.gov.au to learn more about the History Trust, our collections, public programs and museums, and how we are giving the past a future now.